This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you had an extra hour in your day, what's the first thing you would do? Get outside more? Check in on that friend you've been meaning to catch up with? Maybe learn how to play an instrument? I know I've thought about what I would do with more time in my day, and many people daydream about what they might do in that scenario. The best way to squeeze that special thing into your actual schedule is to know what's important to you and take whatever reasonable steps you can to make those things more of a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you, so you can do more of it. Therapy is not just for people who've experienced major traumas. It's helpful for learning positive coping skills, how to set boundaries, and it empowers you to be the best version of yourself. If you're thinking about giving therapy a try, check out BetterHelp. It's fully online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a quick questionnaire that will match you up with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash FilmDaily today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash FilmDaily. This episode is sponsored by Marvel Strike Force. If you're looking for a superhero-themed mobile game, look no further. Marvel Strike Force is a mobile squad RPG that allows you to battle with your favorite team of superheroes and supervillains in a fight to save the universe against threats like Doctor Doom and Apocalypse. Your goal is to power up your favorite characters to complete missions, unlock gear and other resources, and beat other players in PvP modes like Alliance War and Real-Time Arena. The game is currently celebrating its six-year anniversary, and they're letting new users in on the celebration by providing free stuff, courtesy of our unique link in the show notes. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses, and if you complete each event, you can receive special rewards and skins. Make sure to log in each day and each week to take advantage of all of the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out. We've received a unique promo code, so new users can follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL. That's M-A-X-P-O-O-L. Thanks to Marvel Strike Force for sponsoring this episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Slash Film Show. Today is Tuesday, July 11th. 2023 on today's episode of the show we are going to have a spoiler-filled discussion about mission impossible dead reckoning part one my name is ben pearson i'm an editor at slashfilm.com and i'm joined on today's episode by slash film editor brad omen hey that's me brad uh before we get into our discussion you have some news yes i do i got engaged yay congratulations Hooray, we did it. <laughs> so tell me how it happened. What what went down? Uh, so my girlfriend and I met at Sundance uh, in uh, Park City uh, in 2016. Um, and it's been going ever since with some, 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 some speed bumps here and there to start off with, you know, when it's a long distance relationship kind of thing. Um, but so uh, she lives in Utah and her family's there and she has a she runs a restaurant there. Pogo's go check it out if you haven't already. And uh, so my, I went there to visit and uh, my mom came for the first time, actually. So our parents got to meet for the first time. They hadn't met yet. Um, and that actually wasn't the impetus for me doing it. I was actually anticipating on doing this later this year, uh, but I just kind of like felt like making it happen sooner. And so I kind of fast tracked everything. And uh, we went up to Park City and there's this brunch spot up there called Five Seeds. Uh, it's, it's this fantastic place. Um, and I took, uh, was planning on taking her there and then just doing it up on Main Street in front of the Egyptians. Since we met at Sundance, that's kind of like the staple Sundance location. You know, mm-hmm. whenever you see the marquee for Sundance Film Festival, it's it's on the Egyptian uh, marquee. So uh, I did it up there and uh, she said yes. And, uh, and here we are. That's amazing. Well, congrats, Brad. That's such a cool story. And uh, I'm, I'm happy to see that so uh does this mean you're moving to utah so at some point yes uh it's not necessarily clear like how soon but that that is the the plan because uh she's gonna keep running that that restaurant out there um the soonest it could happen maybe at the end of this year but i'm thinking it'll probably be next year that it'll happen okay gotcha um awesome all right well uh yeah that's that's great news uh i have no idea brad how to transition from a nice story about love being in the air to the death-defying thrills of mission impossible dead reckoning part one so uh i guess let's just go ahead and yeah say last time this is a a spoiler warning i know that the movie you know we're recording this on tuesday the movie i actually saw it in imax screening last night here in in northeast florida and um I know the movie's like in theaters right now, but like 
maybe people, if you know, they're listening to this, the second it appears in their feed, haven't had a chance to see it yet or whatever. But, um, you know, if that's the case, go check out this movie and then come back and listen to us. So, uh, yes, everything, you know, all bets are off for the rest of this discussion. Um, so I guess let's just open it up with broad, uh, you know, initial reactions, Brad, what did you think about dead reckoning part one? Uh, for the most part, I enjoy it. I think it's very entertaining. Uh, there's lots of great action set pieces. Tom Cruise is fantastic as always. Uh, Haley Atwell makes a great addition to the ensemble cast. Um, there's some some sharp writing, but I I feel like for me it doesn't quite measure up to the greatness of Fallout that came before it, um, and it it maybe isn't quite as good. Uh, as Ghost Protocol or or Rogue Nation, I've seen it twice now, and I'm still kind of trying to figure that out. But for me, I think the um, what the biggest problem this movie has is that uh, the way Chris McQuarrie and Tom Cruise make these movies is they come up with these big stunt action set pieces, and then they figure out how to piece them together together with the script afterwards. And uh, like Fallout, you don't necessarily see the seams of how, how they did that. You know, it feels pretty seamless. It all makes sense. And here it kind of feels like there was a little bit of a stretch for them trying to figure out how to fit these stunts into the story. And the story itself feels a little unnecessarily complicated and it feels like it sacrifices some of the uh, integral parts of what has made the franchise great for the last couple movies uh, in favor of new characters and the plot. And it's a little bit frustrating uh, at times with, with how it unfolds, but uh, having seen it twice now, I will say that uh, even though it's a two and a half hour movie, it, it's a breeze to watch. It's never boring. Uh, it's it's still fun. And even the stuff that is, you know, a little bit of a detriment to the movie doesn't, you know, keep me from having a good time with it. I think we are almost 100 percent aligned uh, on, on our takes on this movie. I You said it so well. I don't really have much more to add. I, I will just say that it feels a little shaggier um, than the previous Macquarie movies because those films that he worked on felt so tight and purposeful and this movie feels yeah like it, it's wandering a little bit there are some moments there where it sort of loses its way and then and then you know uh comes back to the next big set piece and um yeah i i totally agree that you can start to see the seams of mccory's like very unique style of filmmaking there are not very very many directors if any really other mainstream directors that are making blockbuster movies like this at this budget level in this particular style. Um, so he has like a lot of freedom to be able to like create this stuff on the go. And, and in rogue nation and fallout, you didn't really feel that at all. But yeah, I think I wonder if it's part of me wonders, Brad, if like we're seeing the seams a little bit because of the nature of this, just being part one in a two part story. And like, maybe if we, you know, saw a back to back screening with part two, if some of those, uh, storytelling gaps or things that I felt were shaggy or, um, you know, a little smudgy or whatever might have been cleaned up because the circle was completed with the, the second movie. Did you have that, that vibe at all when you saw it the second time? Uh, no, I don't think so. Because for me, I, I actually think this movie does a pretty good job at being very self-contained, even though it is a part one. It has a clear beginning, middle and end. And there's not much of a, a cliffhanger. You know, there's a bit of a setup for what's to come in the second one, uh, but only to the point where, like, you know what their objective is in part two. But you don't necessarily have any indication of what's going to happen for as far as how they get there or, you know, there, there's no, um, you know, big mystery that they have left to solve or something. There's, it's not like an Empire Strikes Back or Across the Spider-Verse ending. So that that to me wasn't really the issue. I think... As far as the the story goes, I think that really um, what I would have preferred is that uh, the thing that is part of that comes from Ethan's past is not something that they like are retconning and inserting into the franchise. But I wish that it was something that tied back to the original Mission Impossible uh, instead. And they used a character or someone with ties to a character from that first movie to make it feel more substantial because introducing a new character this late in the game and trying to make him matter that much to Ethan is pretty hard. And uh, that's, I think that's one of the big problems with Haley Atwell's character is they really try and push her as a new character that matters to Ethan just as much as Ilsa does. But we, we can get into those details as we break down the movie. Yeah. And yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'll, I'll do that. I'll, when we talk about Gabriel, we'll, we'll, uh, come back around to that point as well. Um, so the movie opens with this submarine sequence that basically just feels like you're, like you're dropped right into 
the hunt for red October or something for like the first, whatever, five or 10 minutes of the movie, which um, I thought was pretty rad. And like the, the whole uh, conceit of like the second sub actually just being this ghost sub that was never really there. And the, they end up uh, firing on it. And then the, <laughs> the, the kind of ridiculous part that happens in action movies sometimes where like their own missile loops back around and, <laughs> and blows up their own ship. Uh, what did you think about that sort of, um, you know, a lot of times with these, uh, with these Mission Impossible movies, like the opening prologue has like some sort of reveal where one of the characters that we're watching yanks off a mask and, oh, look, surprise, it's one of the characters that we know and love from this franchise. But they don't really do that here. It's it's like a, a fully um, self-sufficient kind of uh, completely plot-based uh, opening prologue. What did you think about that? Yeah, it's funny because like I was anticipating you know, like Ethan and his team being in the other sub or something like that. Like, oh, oh of course, uh, you know, they're the ones who can find this sub that apparently can't be found, you know, by mm-hmm. anybody else. And, you know, and and thinking, okay, so why are they trying to get this sub? But then, yeah, really, it's just an introduction for uh, what we come to learn is the entity, which is in, in a way, I think it's kind of cool because it makes, you know, the entity, you know, that gives it the focus and makes it that threat because, it's always the the opening sequences of these movies that show, oh man, look how great these guys are at doing what they do. And it's like, hey, look at this thing and how, you know, deadly it is uh, at creating chaos. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so like you've seen the movie twice. How can you, how would you describe the entity? So the entity is uh, a piece of artificially intelligent software that was designed to be a covert operative that can go in and out of government uh, security systems, really anything, and accomplish any given task and destroy itself without being noticed. And they, it's it's put in this submarine system as a way to to test it. They're do, basically doing a test run to make sure that it works as well as it's supposed to. Uh, but unfortunately, it. Um, basically educates itself, becomes sentient and self-aware and decides to, you know, uh, take, you know, take things for itself. Mm -hmm. What do you think about the idea of the entity as, or or I guess like the overarching villain almost in this movie being something, um, you know, that, that, that AI is very much in the news right now. It has been for a while, but they've also been making this movie for a long time. Like I think chat GPT originally came online or became popularized, like, what was it late last year or something? And this movie was originally supposed to come out, I don't know, in 2021 or something. So like they've been working on this for a long time. This is not necessarily like an answer to all of the AI discussion that we've been having as a culture over the past six to eight months or whatever. Um, But what do you, what do you make of mission impossible stepping into this territory of saying, okay, we're going to actually use this as like a commentary on you know, a somewhat real world issue. Yeah, it's interesting because I wonder how this would have felt if it came out before, you know, chat GDP and all this, uh, you know, AI art and all these discussions and AI taking, you know, journalism jobs and stuff like that came out. Um, if it would have felt more unbelievable than it does now, if anything, you know, I guess it's kind of the perfect time for this to come out because, you know, AI is able to do all this stuff and it would it only makes sense that the governments of the world would want to use AI to, you know, take human roles in, you know, taking missions and doing things that need to be done uh, that don't have a human element involved in them, leaving little room for error and no real trace of, of evidence behind or anything like mm-hmm. that. So, uh, I mean, applying it to Mission Impossible is, is really cool. I, I think that if it would have came out a few years ago, it might have felt a little too sci-fi, but now it feels real enough that it, it makes sense. Yeah. So one of the things I think that does feel a little sci-fi or maybe a little heightened is this idea of the the cruciform key, which is like the the big MacGuffin of the movie, sort of where uh, it's these two halves of this key that that are put together and it sort of unlocks, you know, one half unlocks the other and, and uh, proves that it's real and all of that. Um, so we find out in the very beginning of the movie that... Uh, these the halves of these keys, I guess, were on the dead bodies of the Russians who died in the the sub accident in the very beginning. And Ilsa Faust has somehow found one half of this uh, of this key. And so Ethan Hunt has to go to I think it's Namibia or somewhere in the desert to meet up with her and 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 try to 
uh, retrieve one half of this key. And we get this big action set piece where there's this big sand sequence out in the desert. And um, I don't know if you, have you played the Uncharted games, Brad? Did we talk about that? I have not. Okay. In, in uh, Uncharted 3, there's a sequence that is almost exactly like this where um, characters are wandering through the sand after a plane crash and uh, in basically like stumble across an abandoned village and uh there's like a big windstorm sandstorm and everything going on and um yeah so what would you think about this sort of um i don't know it's not quite as like dazzling as some of the big stunt stuff later on but what do you think about this sand action sequence uh, i thought it was okay you know it's funny there's there are a few sequences in this movie that i'm that i was like huh you're not really benefiting a lot by coming out after john wick chapter four yeah <laughs> uh because uh, there, there we have that the big uh sequence that we just talked about in the desert and then you also have like that club sequence and it's like yeah john wick chapter four did this and they did it a little bit better um but uh yeah i mean I think the thing that I was most intrigued by was the the fake out that we get with uh, with Ilsa here mm-hmm. in the beginning by having them make you think that she's she's dead for a little bit. Um, but yeah, you know, it's I, it was fine. You know, I, I I was a little bit annoyed that like the dust kind of obscures everything, and you know, it didn't really require anything uh, I guess innovative to like pull off what what he needed to do. You know, it was a pretty straightforward action sequence, which is fine when everything else is already so complicated. Yeah. Um, but, you know, yeah, I, I wasn't necessarily in love with the sequence. So Ethan makes his way back to the United States and um, we don't realize it, but he dressed up as somebody else with wearing a mask and all of that infiltrates this meeting of a group called the community. I don't know. I didn't take notes when I watched the movie, Brad. I was there with my wife and parents and didn't like bring my notebook or anything with me. Do you know if the phrase the community was ever actually used in the movie or is this just something that like Christopher McQuarrie has used to describe this group of like intelligence leaders? Yeah, I don't think it has ever been mentioned by name in Mission Impossible 4. Maybe it's something that they pulled from like the, the TV series and that's why it has that name or something like that. Yeah, it definitely did not appear in the previous movies. I just didn't even remember if they said it at all in this movie. And I, I don't think they did. No, they definitely um, didn't say say in this movie. Okay. Uh, so yeah, the, the community is like this... this um, this group of uh, government leaders or, or government um, employees that includes like uh, Charles Parnell and Rob Delaney and Indira Varma from Game of Thrones and uh, Mark Gatiss and uh, and Carrie Elways, who plays what's the, his character's name is uh, Dinlinger or Dinlinger. I don't remember how it, it's pronounced in the film. That's another one of those characters where like, did they ever actually say his name in the movie? I don't know. Yeah. They, they might have like once or twice or something. But um, I, th- I think that I think you hear it when uh, that that phone call comes through when Ethan's talking to Kittredge, and because it's like oh, his, yes. his, his director so and so there, and he's like he's like ah uh, no, you know he's not you know available <laughs> at the moment. Yeah. Um, so this this community group is filling Carrie Elway's character in on the entity and and what it can do and what it's capable of and and all of that. Um, the whole thing, this kind of struck me as an odd scene, Brad, because Carrie Elways is supposed to be the director of national intelligence. And there are all these other people in the room who seem kind of like underlings who are, who know much more than he does. And they're just kind of like, you know, speaking in sentence fragments and one person will take the baton from the other. And, uh, you know, the, the camera is jumping around the room as, as all these people offer their input about and their analysis of what this thing is and what it can do. And it just kind of makes Carrie Elway's character feel like he's bad at his job for not knowing this stuff. But, <laughs> but um, I don't know. What did you think about, about this uh, exposition, exposition dump here in the, in the beginning of the movie? Yeah, you know, I don't know if it's because he's, maybe it's because he's new or something like that. Because the one thing I thought was interesting is if you uh, look in the background on one of the shots of Carrie Elway's, uh, you can see a framed photo of Angela Bassett's character who seemingly had uh, his his role, essentially, in the previous Mission Impossible movies. Yeah, I uh, noticed that. I think she was the leader of the CIA in the previous movie, and he's the director of national intelligence. So I think there's, okay. a, there's a slightly different thing there. It seems like Kittredge is now the leader of the CIA. Um, but I did clock that Angela Bassett photo in the background, and then I, I read uh, this morning that Angela Bassett was originally supposed to come back to be in this movie, but she couldn't because of COVID travel restrictions at the time. Ah, so I think they must've okay. just like sort of pivoted from there. Um, yeah. So yeah, but go but on. Yeah, I, th- I, I, th- I thought it was interesting that like, 
the IMF isn't something that he knows about. And I guess it's really just a matter of plausible deniability. You know, not everyone needs to know that the impossible mission force uh, is real. But in the, in this case, considering what they are discussing, you would think that he would know more about the situation. But, but also, maybe he's playing dumb based on what we learn later in the movie. Yeah, and I'll definitely remind me to, to come back to that if we don't get to it, because I, I definitely want to, to tap back into that. Um, so... Yeah, we, we learn more about the entity, which we've already talked about. Um, Ethan does this cool thing where he like throws this green gas in the air, which is just like a really cool visual. And he has this sort of face-to-face, uh, I guess, reunion with Kittredge, which is really cool to see Henry Zerny reprising this role from the original movie. Um, and he's really just like, I think in Chris's review, Chris Evangelista's review, he said um, something about like Henry Zerny like really making a meal out of every... Uh, speech that he is able to deliver. I mean, every every single sentence, like I would I would listen to him read the phone book as Kittredge, like yeah. just the way he emphasizes certain syllables. It's it's so good. It's very. Um, I feel like Agent Smith from the Matrix is like took a page out of Kittredge's playbook. The uh, the Hugo Weaving. Uh, he he may have watched that performance and said like, "Hey, this guy's onto something." With like the, the yeah. sort of bizarre <laughs> delivery going on there, but um, yeah. So uh, okay, so so. Ethan basically like gets the information that he needs from this and uh, you know, makes like a, an uneasy alliance, I guess with Kittredge and realizes, okay, I have one half of the key. Now um, the other half of the key is going to be somebody at the Abu Dhabi airport is going to have this. So there's this whole extended airport sequence where we are introduced to the grace character who's played by Haley Atwell, who is this pickpocket and thief. And uh, there's this whole big back and forth about like them looking for the other half of the key and uh, Benji and the nuke that that's in the the suitcase and the introduction of Gabriel. So I figured we could all sort of like talk about all of this this big um, extended sequence as one big chunk here. Um, was there any part of this that that jumped out at you that you wanted to talk about first? Uh, no, let's just dig into it. Okay, so um, what did you think about uh, the introduction of Grace, this new character who is definitely given like a huge prominent role in this movie? A lot of times the the sort of supporting characters, the supporting cast members of the Mission Impossible films are, um, you know, certainly secondary to Ethan and, and the rest of the team, but like are are kind of like it takes a while for them to actually like build up and, and become, you know, a, a significant, real significant part of the movie. Um, I'm thinking of like Luther in Mission Impossible 2, for example, like he's, he's kind of like there, but he's not like a, a huge part of the movie. Um but Haley Atwell, I feel like he's given, you know, a ton of screen time and like is is almost like practically the second lead of the film. So what did you think about the, the Grace character? Yeah, I, th- I think this character is is done really well um, for the most part. That's the she's she's playful. I like that she's not a spy. Uh, you know, she's a thief and they, um, they do a really good job of uh, setting her up to be a new addition uh, to the team by showing that she's you know very skilled at what she does. And uh, I, I love Haley Atwell as, as an actress, too. You know, her performance is great in this. She um, she does so much with uh, her eyes. There were several times just looking at her, the way she reacts to what Tom Cruise is doing and what's happening, especially in the, the car chase later. Um, yeah, she's she's particularly great. So, yeah, this was a character that I, I really liked a lot. Yeah, I, I like the um, the pickpocket nature because it, it allows Tom Cruise to get back into that a little bit too, which is a, a skill that we've seen Ethan use, but very, very rarely in the Mission Impossible world. Like, I think the first movie is the first time that he does the uh, the sort of like sleight of hand kind of stuff with the knock list and the and the disc and all of that. Um, oh, and I should say, like, I did a, a big oral history of the, the CIA uh, heist sequence from the first film. So if you want to check that out, uh, I'll put a link to that in the show notes. But yeah. Um, but yeah, like the the idea of like him uh, sort of, yeah, using almost like a close up magic kind of thing to like make things appear and disappear behind his hands and fingers and all of that kind of stuff. It was cool to see him like get back into that mode a little bit to sort of go face to face with like the um, the skill set that Haley Atwell's character had. So, um, yeah, like you said, it's just fun to see a character who doesn't have the same old set of skills that like all these other characters have uh, be introduced into the mix. So I, I thought she was like very charismatic and, and a welcome uh, addition to the group if if maybe like um you know as we'll talk about later i feel like they they sort of maybe uh maybe put a little bit too much emphasis on her character a little too soon uh in certain places but um we'll get to that so uh benji and the nuke that that scene seemed to be like the biggest thing that simon Pegg has to do in this movie what did you think about that sequence where he's trying to like solve the uh the puzzle down there 
Yeah, they do a great job of building uh, so much suspense as like a secondary aspect of of what's actually happening in the scene and just the the interaction between the ensemble and just how it keeps going back and forth is like it's it's kind of a miracle that these movies work as well as they do. You know, even if this one doesn't feel like it's as good as, you know, Fallout or Rogue Nation or, or anything like that. Uh, there's so many moving pieces to keep track of. Like, I, I don't even know, like, as a filmmaker, like, how, you know, you, you, you do a movie like this, especially when uh, you're flying by the seat of your pants a lot of the times and making things up on on the spot. Um, but, yeah, there's just uh, a lot of great, you know, cool things here that, that Simon Pegg gets to do and, and that Luther gets to do. And I I particularly enjoy the uh, the callback to the first Mission Impossible, of, of which there are several in this movie, but the reference to Luther's uh, nicknames, Net Ranger and Phineas Freak was uh, was a fun little deep deep cut for the longtime fans. Oh man, um, yeah. So what was that like? Is that is that just? Uh, I'm trying to remember the original line from the first Mission Possible. Yeah, so it's uh, when they're talking about breaking into the Langley and CIA. Uh, Luther, he's like, he's like, I don't know, I just don't know. And um, he's like, it doesn't sound like the Luther Stickle I know. He's like, what do they used to call you? The Net Ranger, Phineas Freak, and like, uh, he's like the only guy who hacked NATO Ghostcom uh, and lived to tell the tale. Oh, okay, and so, like, okay. And so, yeah, it's it's a deep cut to hit the nicknames he's gotten for all the work he's done over the wow. years. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I, I I've been watching one Mission Impossible movie a week leading up to. Uh, Dead Reckoning Part One, and like, so I guess I watched the first one seven weeks ago, and um, <laughs> and I I totally forgot about that line. So yeah, uh, I, I I have seen the first Mission Impossible like countless number of times, so I know little details about that movie way more than any person should. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Well, that's why we pay the big bucks at Slash Film. Right? <laughs> um, okay, so uh, yeah, the uh, the Gabriel character, um, I think his name is Isai Morales. Is that how you pronounce it? Um, I believe so. I think that's right. Yeah. So he is this this character this shadowy character from Ethan's past. And um, you mentioned him a minute ago. And like, we get a couple of these black and white flashbacks to what happened to Ethan before he joined the IMF, which is kind of interesting. But I feel like this movie doesn't really close the loop on that. And maybe it's just going to pick that up in part two. But like, I yeah, that was one of those things that felt like a thread that I really would have liked to see given more attention in this movie, um, because it's probably going to be another year or two or whatever before we see uh, the next one. So um, I was just kind of bummed to see them like set up something that I thought was like a really intriguing subplot and then just like punt that until the next film. Yeah. I hope that there is more to learn because uh, the one thing I do appreciate about what they did though, is they tied it into another part of the movie to help kind of like explain it. And um, by tying it into the moment that Ethan was given a choice to become an IMF agent, it allows them to, uh, you know, explore some exposition and provide some details as to how people become IMF agents. And that, you know, using that to bring grace into the fold and the conversation that Benji and Luther have about, you know, being given the choice. Uh, that was, that was a cool detail of them to finally kind of explain, you know, how that aspect of the IMF works, you know, at least in the vaguest terms possible. But I, yeah, I'm very curious as to like who this woman is and what happened with Ethan that put him in this position where he was given the choice of, you know, either you need to, you know, do this and become an IMF agent or, you know, you're going to go to jail. So obviously it made it so that he was probably accused of that woman's death and responsible for it or something like yeah. that. But I want to, yeah, I want to know more of like the, the history there. Like what is their relationship to each other? Like what's the, what's the dynamic? And that's why I was a little frustrated because it's like, this would be way easier to digest and understand if there were some tie, you know, to the original Mission Impossible. And granted, it makes it a little difficult when almost everybody on the team is was either killed or turned out to be, you know, uh, working against Ethan. Mm-hmm. But there, 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 there's got to be a way to, to do it. And I feel like that would have made it a little more, I don't know, substantial. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And um, one of the other things that that appeared in this very franchise before is a female thief character. And that was Naya Nordoff Hall, Tandyway Newton's character from Mission Impossible 2. And I just thought it would have been, you know, instead of introducing this Grace character, like they have a canonical thief in the Mission Impossible universe already. Like why not yeah. just bring her back? Um, I didn't think about that, but that would have been very cool. Yeah, which would have been which would have been fun. But um I guess I don't know, the age difference or something, like the idea that like Tandyway Newton is now 50 years old and like maybe they didn't want a 50 year old woman in an action movie nowadays like which is like stupid and 
obviously wrong, but like definitely something that, uh, you know, Hollywood has like proven time and time again, that's how they think. Um, and, and speaking of the ages of characters, just really quickly, I, you know, the cynical part of me was thinking, um, because of what happens to Rex Ferguson's character that we'll get to in a little bit. And then, uh, Haley Atwell being brought in, I was like, oh, they're just like sort of trading in Rebecca Ferguson for the newer model. And Haley Atwell is actually 41 years old and Rebecca Ferguson is actually 39 years old. Like I, I was kind of shocked to discover that. I thought Haley Atwell. Wow. Was Haley much... Atwell is older than Rebecca Ferguson. Yeah. I thought she was much younger. Um, yeah, that I would have guessed my like mind. seven years younger or something, but yeah, that's uh, crazy. So yeah, I, I couldn't uh, level that accusation at, at uh, this movie either. But um, although, although I will say it doesn't seem like it. Well, I don't know. I, I I'm, I'm unsure because that, that's one of the things that was frustrating to me is like, it doesn't seem like Ethan, cares about grace in the same way that he cares about Ilse. It really does seem like his care for her is rooted in trying to you know, like course correct her and bring her towards like the IMF and give her like a purpose in her life, as opposed to like having a, an affectionate relationship like yeah. he does with, with Ilsa. Um, the, but like those lines are kind of blurred a little bit with the way we'll get to it later, but like the way Gabriel talks about her and like, basically putting Ilsa and Grace on the same footing was, yes. was where I had the biggest problem. Yeah, same. Um, okay, actually, before we get to that, let's take a quick break, and then we'll be right back. All right, so uh, basically, yeah, the, the airport sequence ends when uh, Ethan realizes that Gabriel is there, and he gets spooked, and and there's that cool moment where they're looking at the, the video footage, and they realize that like the entity can erase Gabriel as he's going up the escalator like in real time, which I thought was a cool... Um, yeah, visualization I, of, of what, and I gotta say is. too, I do feel like that they they were probably really kicking themselves when they called Ghost Protocol Ghost Protocol because they really could have used the word ghost in a title here, <laughs> and it would have been great. Like if this was called Mission Impossible Ghost in the Machine or something like that, yeah. like it, yep. it would have been awesome. But it's like ah, we already used Ghost guys. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, that's great. I didn't think about that. Uh, so they basically Ethan just says like, all right, everybody, you know, mission abort, go your separate ways, and I'm going to track Grace to Rome, and then. They get into this, this whole uh, back and forth where that, that sort of leads to this big car chase through the streets of Rome. Um, they change cars a couple times. They, I think they end up in this this yellow Fiat that is like, uh, I guess the IMF has sort of placed vehicles all around the world just in case, uh, you know, their their agents need it. Which Yeah, that was, that, was, that was a cool new thing. Yeah, it reminded me a little bit of like, um, I think it was Rogue Nation... Maybe it was Ghost Protocol. Now, now they're blurring together for me just a little bit. But like, they get on a uh, he and uh, Jerry, Jeremy Renner's character get on like a, uh, an abandoned train and like yeah, that's, that's Ghost in. Protocol. Yeah, okay, yeah. And there's like all this you know high tech equipment and stuff and like an IMF screens everywhere and all that. And I'm like, oh man, they just like have so much money to be like just placing this yeah. stuff all <laughs> over the world just in case. So uh, very like spy movie shit that I that I enjoyed. So. Um, what did you think about this extended car chase sequence? And there's like the, the sort of shootout in the streets where there's like a Mexican standoff and all of that. And and what did you think about this whole part of the movie? It's, it's so cool. It's just like, I, I love the way that they take, you know, what could be just a pretty straightforward action sequence and add these cool elements to it that mix it up. You know, you have Tom Cruise and he's really handcuffed to Haley Atwell for the scene. Uh, they're, they're both, you know, doing doing their, their the majority of their stunt driving. Um, you have Palm Clementif in this massive Humvee chasing after them and crashing through mopeds while maniacally laughing. Mm -hmm. uh, you, you've got Shea Wiggum in pursuit at the at the same time. Um, and the you know, and I love the, the way that they inject humor into it too. Like that that sequence when the uh, it gets rolled down the stairs and they end up on opposite sides of the car and they're just <laughs> yes. like, wait, what? <laughs> yeah, that was great. And I, yeah. I like the um, the introduction of like the idea that this Fiat is like kind of has a mind of its own and like doesn't really handle the same way that other cars do because they're just like driving around out of control and driving in circles and like they can't quite get a handle on how this vehicle moves which yeah you know, very much contrasts with like the the calm cool and collected like oh i'm tom cruise one of my favorite things is yeah is, is when ethan is is actually flustered at the things that are happening and yeah. that, that that's one of the things that makes him such a good character is because like so many spies they make just like cool and like prepared for anything and ethan like genuinely in moments he's just he's like what the f like, what am i doing like yeah. what's going on <laughs> yeah and he like apologizes to uh to Haley atwell's character and it's just like sometimes they program these things like i, yeah. I don't know the way they set them up or whatever he, yeah he's you can tell he's very embarrassed it reminds me a little bit of like the best parts of uh of cruise from like edge of tomorrow you know where like yeah. he's sort of puncturing the the cool guy action hero vibe a little bit 
Um, so yeah, eventually the, the scene or the, the sort of story takes us to Venice, which, uh, there's this big party sequence where that is very, very much like something out of a John Wick movie, as you mentioned, um, the white widow, Vanessa, Vanessa Kirby's character is there and she's sort of serving as this broker and, uh, she's trying to, um, yeah, like make a deal for the key or get the key in, in the right person's hands. Uh, there's this big prediction where, either Grace or Ilsa will die. And, you know, they, they talk a lot about the entity during this sequence and like, you know, what it's going to do and who whose hands it's going to end up in and the control and the power behind it all. Um, I, I don't know. Did you have any thoughts about this, Brad? Because I, I have I have some thoughts here. Uh, this is probably the, the most exposition-y exposition scene <laughs> uh, in in the movie, other than, you know, the, the opening where they kind of set the stage for what's happening. And th- this is this is a scene that where uh, I thought Chris McQuarrie shot it, you know, in understanding the way like he if, if anything, the way he shot a lot of these talking scenes, the way he keeps changing angles and cutting back and forth and all those kinds of things. It, it makes it a lot more uh, compelling than it otherwise might be um it did feel like it was unnecessarily convoluted like mm-hmm. I, this is where i started to think it was like there seems to be too much going on here like yeah uh like i don't know why like we have so many so many characters here like i, I don't uh, i i love vanessa shaw uh but i'm not necessarily entirely sure like why she had to be part of this this sequence like this um and this, as I mentioned before, was where I kind of got frustrated because uh, it's fine to have the entity, you know, being this all-knowing thing and setting up Ethan to have to make these difficult decisions. Um, but for me, uh, this particular decision didn't feel like it had the weight that it should because Gabriel very specifically says at one point, it's like Ethan's going to have to choose between, the, you know, the people that he cares about. And it's like he shouldn't care about Grace anywhere near as much as he cares about Elsa. Right. Granted, she knows where the, that one half of the key is. And the mission is very important to him. And they did do a good job of having Gabriel mention that Ethan is always using the people around him to complete his mission. And like that, that that's his focus. But he also genuinely cares about Ilsa. But the fact that they make it that it seems like he cares about Grace as a person just as much and not just about the mission is where I was just like, mm, I don't know about that. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I feel like they overreached there. They, they took, you know, they, they leaned a little bit too hard into that. I and like- that's and that's where you're totally right, where if they would have brought Tandoe Newton in and made her the thief, then it's like, ah, well, then maybe. Yeah, there's <laughs> history between those characters now like, yeah. in the same way that, that Ethan and Ilsa have history. But yeah, so my, I, I don't know, this is not like a hot take, but my take on this movie, I guess, is that like, I feel like the entity is too broad of a threat. It's too vague like it's it's cool like we said that that you know can digitally remove people from videos in real time and stuff but it can also hack into government agencies and also trick submarines and firing at nothing and also predict something as specific as Gabriel will end up with the key tomorrow you know like yeah. all of the and it's it's so powerful that I I found myself always questioning oh well why isn't the entity doing this yeah uh, like like later there's a moment uh, and they make a joke out of it and this is and it's a joke that made me think oh wait a minute why is and it's when uh Benji is is driving a car and he's trying to provide guidance for Ethan on where to go to catch the train mm-hmm. and in order to like uh pay more attention to his computer he puts the car in self-driving mode and hops in the passenger seat. And then for a brief second, he like looks uh, over the steering wheel and reconsiders and puts his seatbelt on. Yeah. And in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, wait a minute. So there's a self-driving car. It has to use some kind of technology to be able to do it. Why doesn't the entity have, you know, the ability to, you know, be in this car and stop Benji from doing whatever he's doing? Yes. Yeah, hundred percent. And like, you know, as ridiculous as it is, I, I'm going to say it, Cypher from the Fast and Furious franchise would have taken control of that car and fucked things up. You know, like that's, <laughs> that's one, one area where the Fast and Furious franchise actually like tops at least what they're doing in this specific Mission Impossible movie with the tech, because like all of the conversations that the characters have about the entity and its capabilities it actually did remind me a little bit of of like the the god's eye kind of conversation of that yeah. that is was happening in in the most recent Fast and Furious movies where like you know it's just this this kind of thing that is like this all powerful it's kind of like a generic action movie thing and like my eyes started to glaze over a little bit in Dead Reckoning when they were talking about it because like you know I care more about the character stuff like of course you know these movies are um maybe a little complicated and and whatever but like they're typically uh pared down to such a, a level that like you don't really have time to think about it you're kind of like 
along for the ride. And and this movie had the valleys between the, the big peaks of the action scene were uh, so deep, I guess, that like I actually had time to sit there and be like thinking about the entity in a way that I hadn't really been thinking about other Mission Impossible villains in previous projects. So yeah, like at, at one point, Luther is like, Ethan, you're playing 4D chess with an algorithm. And like, you know, that stuff, it just didn't really connect with me in the way that I wanted it to. So yeah. Um, uh, okay, so I, I guess like after this, uh, I think they're still in in Venice, and there's this big alley fight with uh, the, the Paris character played by Palm Clementieff, and um, the entity takes over Benji's voice, which I thought was a really cool moment, yeah. um, and is guiding Ethan in the wrong direction and all that. And then there's these big, this two uh, these these um, bridge fights between um, Grace and uh, what's his name. Gabriel. Uh, Gabriel, thank you, and and then also Ilsa and Gabriel, and I, I I couldn't really track, and maybe because you've seen it twice, Brad, you can fill me in here. Like, what happened to Grace? Like, she was fighting with Gabriel on the bridge, and then she kind of like disappears, and then Ilsa fights with him on the bridge, and Ilsa dies, and then Ethan runs up, and he is like devastated, obviously. And then Grace kind of runs up behind him. And like, were they on two different bridges fighting? And like, that's why Grace wasn't there. Like, where where was Grace? What happened to her? As far as I can tell, I, I think Grace just got incapacitated in the fight. Like she got knocked back and knocked down and maybe temporarily knocked out. Okay. Uh, okay. I guess I'll buy that. Um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, so, so Ilsa dies. And um, I got to say, I felt like this was a huge mistake. Like this was a, a big mistake in, that this movie made. And I just, I, I don't know. It felt uh, at the same time, it, it felt like frustrating. It also felt kind of inconsequential because for Ilsa to be such a big character over the past, let's call it two and a half movies now. Um, I feel like the characters didn't really react to her death in any meaningful way. Like the, you know, th- there's that moment in uh, dial of destiny where a character dies and Indiana Jones and uh, Phoebe Waller-Bridge's character uh, escape. And she is like hooting, hooting and hollering because they got out of a tight spot or whatever. And Indy says like, hey, my friend just died. Like my friend was just yeah. murdered just now. And like, I feel like Indiana Jones, uh, you know, treated his friend's death with more gravitas than the, this movie treats Ilsa's death. So in some capacity, I agree with you. But on a second viewing, I actually saw some, I, 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 I appreciated some of the things that they did. They just did it in a way that um, was, I guess, maybe a little bit more brief than I would have liked. And I think it's just because of how fast the movie has to move that you, you just they just don't have the time to deal with it. But uh, one thing that I like that they do is they do um, a really nice moment between Ethan and Ilsa where they're on like a rooftop in Venice. And she says that it's her first time in Venice. Yes. And they kind of just embrace each other. And like, it's a very nice moment between them. After Ilsa dies, it cuts to a shot on Ethan on that same roof and he's just by himself and just kind of like staring off and like being regretful. Yeah. And then uh, the conversation between Luther and Grace is pretty good too. Cause I, I, I like how Luther, Luther that describes it. She's like, were you close with her? And, and he's like, in our own way. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's a little bit that we didn't get to see more of Simon Pegg's performance because when he enters the scene, it's a quick moment where he's he's been sitting at the desk in the other room, and I yep. think that it, it looks like he's just been sitting and staring, like really just like thinking and sad. And then yeah, he, like, and he's kind of like and come... years away almost. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so, so, I, so I like that. But I, I even even with that though, they, it does really feel like they really sidelined Ilsa in this movie uh, in favor of Grace for whatever reason. And it's I, I really feel like Ilsa deserved like a much better way to go if that was going to be it. Yeah, if if the if this is going to be a, a death that really sticks, and it kind of seems like it is, like like Cruz's or or Ethan is like you know right over her body, and like it feels like if there was a way to save her, if there's a way that like you know they could there was actually not her, it was somebody wearing a mask or something like we would have known about that unless they're doing some sort of like huge like prestige level trickery where like this is all a show for the AI or something, you know, like Ethan knows that like the entity is in, has hacked into like every camera in the world. And like all, you know, they have to be like on quote unquote 
to, you know, uh, perform. Like an Ocean's Eleven style. Yeah, thing. exactly. To perform this grief or something. And like Ilsa is actually going to be somehow the one who like comes back and saves the day at the very end of part two. But, but, and, and that would be like why Ethan is standing there alone, you know, uh, looking mournful on, on that balcony in that shot that you mentioned. But I just think that I'm, that's just what I want to happen because I like the Ilsa character. I don't think that's yeah. what the movie is actually going to do. So I just feel like if they were going to make this, this choice to kill her off, I should have been like emotionally devastated. Like I should have been crying in the theater because I love this character so much and what she means to this franchise and all this. And I just kind of felt like it was like a, it wasn't treated with the the gravity that I, I thought it deserved. So um, yeah. I don't know how much more I can say about that, but uh, yeah. So anyway, I guess that's a, a big sort of, um, down point unfortunate point in the movie but then it transitions into the orient express and basically like the movie is uh, picks up from here and, and doesn't really stop until the very end of the movie so uh grace doubles as the white widow and there's this whole bit where kittredge is the buyer for the the key that you know they have both parts of the key now and uh denlinger is also there and explains that like it's an early version of the entity that is on the mainframe of the sub and like that's what they that's what the key unlocks and like that's what they ultimately are going to have to go get in the second movie because it's an early version of the uh of the entity before the ai sort of became sentient am i tracking that right is that what how you understood all of that to go so it's from what i can tell is the is the entity it is yeah like it's the, the source code for the entity is in that submarine and that's yes. where it started and that, yeah. And that's how it became self-aware and then spread around to the rest of everywhere where it's going. So, and the, and yeah, and they specifically say the only way to shut down the entity is by accessing its, its source code, which is yeah. Inside that submarine. Yeah. And it seems like Ethan is the only one who actually wants to sh- shut it down. Like it's, it's not like um, it didn't strike me anyway. And maybe I'm, I missed a couple lines of dialogue or something because I, I was like, my head was spinning trying to keep track of like all the specifics of all of this, but it didn't seem to me like Kittredge and Denlinger were there on like a, uh, a mission for the greater good in order to actually like shut this thing down. It seemed like they wanted to control it. They wanted to use it. So yeah, I think from my perspective, Kittredge wants what every other government person wants, which is to have it in in its possession so that they can do whatever they want to do as a superpower. And I think Cariel was his character. He's trying to stop it from being discovered that they're the ones who created it and uh, are behind, you know, what, what actually happened. And it's the, it's their fault. Okay. Yeah, I just like, you know, the way that this scene plays out, this this is part of where I feel like I could see a little bit of the seams of what McQuarrie does, where like he sort of is constantly changing the narrative of the movie, because to me, it seemed like, um, you know, that there's this moment where Ethan tells Grace, like, hey, there's this guy named Kittredge, like, go tell him that uh, that I offered you a job and that you choose to accept and all of that. that. That's a big part of like the back half of the movie, right? So when Kittredge shows up as the buyer... I feel like you're supposed to, you as the audience are supposed to like gasp at that and be like, wait, what? Like who, what side is he on here? Like, is he double crossing the U S government? Like what, what exactly is his, um, is his plan here and all that. And then by the end of the movie, the same thing happens where like, uh, the Grace character just tells him, Hey, whatever. And like, he's doing the ending narration to to Ethan at the end. And it's kind of like, okay, everything is fine. Kittredge is just, just sort of like, um, you know, uh, status quo or whatever. And I, I, the way that they framed him being the buyer seemed like a big reveal that then yeah. wasn't really. So yeah, I, yeah, I agree. It, it was, it was kind of like, you know, that moment in uh rogue nation where the villain takes off that mask in the sandstorm yes. and you're supposed to be like, and you're supposed to be like, Oh, but then it's like, wait a minute. Why? <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> uh, but yeah. And so like, it's, it, on some level, I appreciate it because, like, they even though it makes you feel like Kittredge is kind of a villain, like it's it establishes he's always trying to do what he thinks is best for the government, even if it's not necessarily the most ethical, you know, or or smart decision. Yeah, and it it really acts as a way to make Ethan the moral compass for everybody because he's the only one who's always trying to do what is best for everyone. You know, it's, yeah. it's always about the greater good. Yeah, that's absolutely true, and and you know, to a certain degree, like I shouldn't really be be like digging into the details on this stuff because it really doesn't really matter. It's just kind of, you know, 
spy stuff. Like, you know, they could have said practically anything there and it's all an excuse to get to the next big action set piece. But I, I like to try to like track and understand what's going on. No, for sure. Things. So, um, but yeah, so yeah, I think, I think that's a good, that's a good way of looking at it is like everything is in counterpoint to Ethan and like he is the North star for how to react to something like this. So that, that makes me feel a little bit better about it. Um, so yeah. Meanwhile, Ethan does the big parachute jump to land on the train, uh, which I, I was bummed to see was the very end of the movie because that was such a huge part of the marketing and like you knew it was coming. And yeah, honestly, I feel like the, the them focusing so much of the marketing on showing off that stunt really kind of took the wind out of the parachute. It did. Yeah. Yeah. I was bummed about that because I just thought I just kept thinking like, oh my God, like how amazing would this have been if I didn't know that this was coming? And like, yeah. I, I get that they have to market the movie and they have to do what they have to do. Um, but uh, that was kind of an inescapable image. Like even if you didn't watch the trailers, I feel like it was all over the posters. It was all over everything. Like, yeah. You, you kind of knew that that was going to like, happen. there were like, there were commercials on TV that like were like featurette commercials showing like, Hey, look, this is a real stunt that we're doing. Yeah. And, and I, and honestly, I think one of the, the other things that was frustrating is kind of how they shot it too, because you do get that one great shot where you, he jumps off the cliff and it follows him and it's really him jumping off the cliff and falling. But then after that, you have the shots of him like close up and like falling through the air and things like that. And it didn't give you the same sense of uh, danger or like reality that like the skydiving sequence and fallout did where you follow him out of the plane into the sky and like you're following them down and you you know, that the camera guy is actually with them falling through Mm -hmm. the air. And there were some shots in here where it felt like they couldn't get what they wanted to. And so they had to like movie magic it up. And it just, it didn't feel like it had the same cool factor that some of the other stunts in the previous movies did. Yeah. Yeah. 100% agree on with that. Um, so, you know, Ethan comes smashing in through the side of the train, which I thought was like a fun reveal that I wasn't really expecting. Um, and then he gets in this big fight with Gabriel on top. And, and Luther had told him, you know, beforehand, like the AI, the entity wants you to, to, you know, have one of these two outcomes or whatever. So like get the key and don't kill Gabriel. And they have this big... Uh, fight on top of the train and they actually did it for real where like the train was going i forget what they said you know, 60 miles an hour 60 miles an hour like yeah. yeah um and i thought that like it was actually kind of cool because you could see that they were doing that stuff for real because cruz's face was distorted yeah. um where like you know it, it's almost as if he had like a, a high-powered fan or something pointing right at his face because like his cheek would be you know like poking out to the side or like his mouth would look really weird because there's yeah. like a lot of wind blowing through it or whatever and i was just thinking like man that must have been an absolute shit show to actually create the audio for that. Like they must have ADR'd all of that in the studio afterwards because there's no way they could get clean audio up there yeah. with, you know, 60 mile an hour winds or whatever on top of the train. So um, what did you think about the the train fight? Train fight was cool. You know, it's it's funny. There's, there are aspects of this movie that kind of feel like Christopher McQuarrie trying to do his version of the original Mission Impossible because you, you have the train sequence, you have Kittredge, you have mm-hmm. these different, different callbacks to it and everything. Uh, and so, yeah, it was interesting to see them do the... the um, the fight on top of the train again, which is something that they, you know, they did in the first uh, mission impossible. And I'm glad that they were able to do it this way because uh, as much as I love the first mission impossible, you know, the, the, the train stuff is uh, you know, the visual effects and stuff haven't aged particularly well, you know, it's, it's 1996. So some of the stuff looks kind of goofy. So them doing this kind of thing uh, practically and having a cool sequence like that, um, you know, it's, it's, it feels like a, uh, a way of bringing the original Mission Impossible into, you know, Macquarie's age of the franchise. Yeah, definitely. Um, so Gabriel is up on the top of the train and he like falls backward just in the right moment and falls into the back of this truck and and basically escapes to, to fight Ethan, presumably in the second film. Um, Ethan, of course, like palms the cruciform key off of him. And <laughs> the last thing we see of Gabriel in this movie is him like doing a Darth Vader, like drop to his knees, scream to the sky, like Ethan, Ethan! <laughs> which uh, I just thought was like a fun, uh, ridiculous kind of touch. So, um, yeah. And then there's like this big train crash sequence where, uh, again, like the, the video game Uncharted, like I think it's Uncharted 2 in this in- instance, um, there's a sequence that's almost exactly like this where the, the Nathan Drake character has to work his way through multiple train cars as these cars are like slowly uh, falling off a cliff. But they do that in live action here and it's it's kind of incredible. I loved this this part of the movie. I mean, yeah, this was this was the thing that I was glad they didn't really show much of anything from in the trailers because watching it happen, I was like, oh, okay, this is cool. Yeah, really, really awesome stuff. And especially like when they make their way into like the uh, 
the food car, the the meal car and stuff. Yeah, like, everything is just like there's so there's uh there's liquid Breeze everywhere. And fire. And, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, so many like cool obstacles. Um, I really appreciated that. Uh, and so before that that part of the movie is over, we get I guess reintroduced to the Paris character who um was nearly killed by Gabriel, and she comes through and ends up saving Ethan and Grace and reveals the the proper info to Ethan about the uh, the name of the sub and all that. Um, and then she seemed to almost die, but like not really because the, the, uh, Greg Tarzan Davis comes over and he's, um, what's his name? Uh, Shea Wiggum's like number two guy or whatever comes over and says like, there's still a pulse here or whatever. So it seems like yeah. Tom is going to be back in, in part eight as well. Um, so what did you think about her? I guess we, we haven't really talked about her except for the glee that was on her face when she was smashing through cars in Rome. Um, what did you think about her as like this sort of, uh, I don't know, like a low level villain in this movie? Yeah, honestly, she was just a cool character. She had a, a cool style about her. I liked her maniacal vibe. Um, and she she was a, a, a badass character. You know, I, I liked that they, they did have a villain who was uh, supposed to go kind of toe to toe with Ethan rather than just Gabriel, you know, standing there and monologuing. Uh, as good as Isai Morales is at doing that because he has a great voice. Yeah. Um, but but yeah, Plum Plum Clementine, I really enjoyed her her character, and I, I I think it would be cool to see her as you know part of the IMF if she's going to survive. I feel like that's probably the next you know thing that she needs to do. Yeah, there's another Fast and Furious connection. The uh, the villain who turns to and joins the family by the end, kind of like yeah. uh, that kind of vibe. So um, so let's see what else happens right here at the very end of the movie. Um, Grace joins the IMF and Ethan parachutes away and ends up meeting up with Benji and Luther has gone off. Like he, he leaves like, I don't know, with 30 minutes to go or something, maybe a little bit more. And, and he says like, he's going into an analog zone where like, he's going to try to hack into the source code of the entity and, um, and track it down and like write some code that can F it up somehow or whatever. <laughs> um, but he has to like do it in a place where he's like totally off the grid. Um, so, you know, we get this final stunt, I guess, of, crews parachuting away and i think they call it speed flying and it was you know hyped up again in, in some of the uh featurettes and promotional materials and stuff but i kind of felt like again with the the wind being taken out of the sales metaphor it was is apt here because it just kind of feels like an afterthought this moment of him like jumping out and just kind of like swirling down uh you know the side of the mountain or whatever and like slowly spinning this parachute like it didn't really have the um the and also that i was hoping for in some ways too i think i think Cruz has started to do a disservice to himself because him doing something like that is something that no other actor would do. Uh, they, they wouldn't be able to learn how to do it very easily and they probably wouldn't risk doing it because it's a very dangerous thing to do. Yeah. And he does, he does it with such ease that it's just like, ah, yeah, what, whatever. <laughs> yeah, that's true. You're absolutely right. I, I'm not giving this like the proper um, respect that it deserves in terms of like, I'm sure that the amount, like the man hours that it took for him to train to do that or whatever, but like the movie itself just kind of treats it as an afterthought. You know, it's, it's just kind of yeah. like, oh yeah, here's a one more little thing that happens and he just kind of, swoops down and gets back in the car with Benji and like that's the end of the movie basically so um I don't know like one of the things that you know thinking about this this uh, experience in its totality Brad like one of the things that I was thinking that I would have liked to have seen in this movie is like they make such a big deal about the entity and, and AI and technology and all this um I, I would have liked to have seen Ethan and his friends realize like this AI has infiltrated every single piece of tech that we have so in order to defeat it we have to make a decision that it never would have predicted or, you know, something like that. Some, something that, um, that, that there's where there's a juxtaposition between the entity and like the human, uh, IMF, like, or like we have to go with our guts and like rely on the things that make us human as this, as a means of defeating this all powerful thing. And, uh, you know, they never had a conversation like that. And like, they never really even did anything like that. And I, I would understand if they didn't want to like, have it be as on the nose to have the characters stand around and say dialogue that reflects that. But like just the, if you got that sense from the movie, I feel like it would have been more satisfying because like we were talking about with the problem of the entity is just being like too big and too vague, you know, like maybe if there was something more um, grounded and personal about the way that they, the characters were like fighting against it, maybe it would have felt more cohesive overall. But um, yeah. I don't know. Uh, okay, I, I think I, mean, I think we hit most of the big moments here. But did you have any other um, closing thoughts about Dead Reckoning Part One? 
Um, we, we didn't get to talk about him much, but I want to give a shout out to Shea Wiggum, who is great in this movie. Oh, yes. um, yeah, yeah. He's, he's just a good foil for, for Ethan, the way he's constantly chasing him. And he also gets one of the best lines in the movie, too, uh, where he calls Ethan a mind reading, uh, shape shifting incarnation of chaos. Yes. Yeah. Very much like uh, vibes of uh, the, the literal manifestation of destiny or whatever it was that, yeah. that Alec Baldwin said. Yeah. Um, oh, okay. So I'm, I'm glad you mentioned Shea Wiggum because I, I forgot to write his name down here. And yeah, he's he's definitely like there the whole time. Just kind of, my wife was saying like, she feels like <laughs> he and uh, Greg Davis, his, his partner, were just like bad at their jobs because they were like, their whole thing was like, get Ethan. And they were like so close to Ethan the whole movie, but they never yeah. actually got him, you know? Yeah. Um, so I thought that was funny. But, uh, but there's this thing with his character. And again, I'm not sure if they're going to pay this off in part two. Or if this was just, you know, uh, a casualty of the way that McQuarrie makes these movies. But there's this this moment where it, it's kind of hinted at that Shea Wiggum's character and Ethan Hunt have a past, have like some sort of connection or something that, you know, there's some sort of personal thing between these two characters. And it's never really touched on. It's, it's mentioned once. And there's that moment in Rome where um, the shootout breaks out and Shea Wiggum's character like pops around the corner of the car with a gun and... Uh, Tom Cruise and Haley Atwell are like sitting there and they're like almost right in his line of fire. And they kind of like Cruise and, and Wiggum lock eyes and like Wiggum kind of like, uh, like shakes his head and like goes around to the other side of the vehicle to continue the firefight or something. Yeah. And, and the movie like slows down and like makes that a moment. And um, I was just wondering if they were, you know, if they are or were setting us up for, you know, some sort of emotional reveal or some sort of like, um, connection or something between those two characters did you get that sense at all so i did wonder about that um but the the thing that convinced me is the is the way that the the, the line unfolds when he says it he's like uh when uh his sidekick character says like you know like you know him personally and he's like no and he's and then he goes but it is personal and he's and he like basically confirms and so like to me i feel like that was their way of saying like they don't really have have like a history of like where like they they have like an actual interaction with each other and that kind of thing but it's just more of like a maybe he's been on ethan's tail for a while and he's just pissed off about it now yeah i thought it was going to be like shay wiggum is going to be like he killed my brother or you know something like you know yeah. there's some sort of um you know the fallout of ethan's decisions let the consequences of, of ethan's uh decisions to to save the world led to a personal cost that that directly affected Shea Wiggum's character somehow. And again, maybe that will happen in part two. Maybe we'll get that information. Um, but it just kind of felt like one of those uh, those um, loose threads or whatever at the end of this movie. Yeah. So, um, and I do think that they also, uh, in relation to that too, it does seem like that they might be setting up uh, his sidekick character to be an IMF agent as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When, when he has that conversation about like, you know, maybe even went rogue for a reason kind of thing. Yeah. Like, um, yeah. What, like, what if he's always doing it, you know, for this reason? And and he asked him, he's like, what would you do if you had that thing? He's like, well, you know, I'd turn it in. He's like, because nobody should have that, you know, that that kind of power. Yeah. And so and, it's like, oh. Yeah. And then there's that, that guy at the very beginning, the food delivery guy who Ethan says, like, welcome to the IMF, who's never seen again. And I just thought it was an odd thing. As so well. I think so. I think that what that is actually is I think that that was their way of setting up the idea of what Ethan does when he's not doing missions and introducing uh, the concept of the fact that they're always trying to recruit new IMF agents. Because since they that is something that they show and explain how they get, become agents, I think they had to introduce the idea of it's not just like a few people. There are a bunch of agents and they're always getting new people. You just don't always see who these other agents are. But it has been just a few people for the past well, few that, movies, right? Like well, it's only yeah, been, well, that's, well, that's yeah. what I mean. Is I think that was their way of expanding and showing, like, look, like, sure, we're focusing on these characters, but, like, there are always other agents in play. Especially because when you think about it, too, like, uh, in uh, Rogue Nation, when he goes into the record store and that's how yeah. he gets his mission, mm -hmm. there's, like, you know, a woman there who is obviously part of the IMF as well, you know? So there's there's obviously a bunch of people in play that have to be part of the IMF. Yes, uh, other true. Other than the team that we know. One thing I did like, and this is another deep cut, uh, this is what I get the big bucks for, uh, is when he asks for the designation for that agent and he gives his call sign, uh, 
uh, Ethan gives his as Bravo Echo 1-1, which is a throwback all the way to the original Mission Impossible, because that is Ethan's designation when he calls in after his entire team is dead. Ah, when the car blows up. Yeah, yeah, and he says Bravo Echo 1-1 on the phone. And they they brought that back one other time um, in, I think it was Ghost Protocol, uh, when um, I think Jeremy Renner asked him, what does his designation or something? Maybe? Okay. But yeah, that's, that's Ethan's uh, little call sign. Nice. Excellent. Uh, okay, cool. Well, yeah, I would love to know, like, you know, if, if our listeners out there have any uh, observations or anything that we didn't touch on or any questions that you guys want to know about, you know, different aspects of this movie or whatever, I would love to, to hear about that. So you can email us at Ben or sorry, at uh, B Pearson at slash film.com. Um, and I think that's going to do it for today's episode. Any other thoughts about dead reckoning part one that we didn't get to Brad? No, uh, you know, it's, it's a good movie. You should see it uh, in theaters. You know, even though we have our, our little qualms with it, uh, I will not, you know, tell anybody to avoid seeing this uh, on the biggest screen possible. Uh, it's a very entertaining movie with lots of cool stuff. And you know, it's, it's the kind of action blockbuster that delivers, uh, you know, set pieces that you don't see in a lot of movies like these movies still are very unique in the practical style of filmmaking and just how big their swings are when it comes to doing real action sequences. There, there are very few moments in this movie where you like uh, are, you know, worried about like CGI or visual effects and how things look bad, you know, because everything is done in such a practical fashion that it just, everything feels real. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. Uh, okay. Yeah, that'll do it. So uh, you can find more about Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning and the original Mission Impossible, especially that CIA uh, heist sequence at SlashFilm.com and linked inside the show notes for this episode. The Slash Film show is published two times a week, bringing you the most exciting news from the world of movies and TV, as well as deeper dives into the great features you can find on SlashFilm.com. You can subscribe to the show on Apple, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please subscribe to our newsletter, send your feedback, questions, comments, concerns, and mailbag topics to us at bpearson at Slash film.com make sure to leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention your email on the air don't forget to rate and review the show on apple Podcasts. tell your friends spread the word thanks for listening and we will talk to you on thursday